Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Well, hi. Hi, we're both back in our homes. I know we are. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to all good, our fellow travelers. Good morning. It's actually Sunday morning here, and I love you all so much that I got myself up out of bed on daylight savings, right? Is it daylight savings? Yeah, yeah. Just, kicked, just kicked in this morning. Of course, mm-hmm. this will come out two weeks from now, but <laughs> we have to, why didn't we record on Wednesday as usual? Because we were both jet lagged. no I actually had a ton of clients you know because I had been gone for three weeks I had to see my clients right away so I had a bunch of clients I had to see and uh that's how it is and fortunately for me I uh didn't I caught probably some bug who knows (laughs) what I did lose my sense of taste for a day or two so who knows what that was but I don't know what that was I was in a lot I was in a lot of airports over the last couple of weeks and especially some wild places but you just yeah. got back from your long stint in Bali. I did. And I did. we heard a little bit about it, obviously, when Robin was on. And then last week I did a solo podcast because I think, I can't remember, I think we couldn't connect because you were in the boonies or someplace. Yeah, we had a hard time. So um, just, you want to summarize for me and the listeners sort of what you got out of the whole thing? Huh. I mean, you know, I think just traveling in general is just so good for, um, expanding your perspective about things. And so I, I mean, obviously Bali is really beautiful. It's just a beautiful place. I went to um, five or six different islands, six, six different islands. And then the, the main country of Bali. And uh, it's just, uh, I think for me, one of the reasons I went obviously is to spend time with Robin, but also because Bali is such a spiritual place, you know, every day, every morning, every business, every home puts out an offering with incense and fresh flowers. They go around and gather fresh flowers and they leave an offering for the spirits every morning. So you're always seeing people um, doing a blessing and smelling the incense. And then they have all of these water temples everywhere and all these guardians and, and symbolism of their spiritual practices everywhere and you know here in the states we're really devoid of (laughs) and they have very little money you know like most of the places that i was staying at are were some of the most beautiful beachfront kind of properties where it was like 60 dollars a night you know and to hire somebody to drive me around for the day and show me things because they drive on the wrong side of the street and it's very very crowded you know, with cars weaving in and out and stuff. So I didn't really feel totally comfortable with driving around on a scooter, you know? And so, you know, it costs $35 or something for somebody to drive me around all day. For an entire month, they make about $300 on average. So when you think about, they have so little, but are so happy, like just really kind, generous people. Like someone would just be like, do you need help? I'll drive you somewhere. Let me order you a car. You know what I mean? Just kindness. 
And I think about that in contrast, especially given what we all were dealing with, with masks and not hugging each other and being separated and, you know, just was a really beautiful experience to just be with different kind of people who really seem to care about each other and take care of each other, you know? Um, and then obviously just sitting with Robin and, you know, just so much wisdom just comes forth all the time. So for my traditional midwifery project, it's something that I'm really focusing on more and more is going places and, and spending time with elder midwives to learn from them and hopefully bring together all that information and be able to share it. And then I went to three births which was great. Someone, someone sent me a DM and said, only Bliss would go to Bali on vacation and, and be like, and on the way, I'm going to go to a few births. <laughs> well, you also, you also went to see Robin in action and you went to see Boomy Sea Hot. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, it is, it's really interesting because we were sort of on the opposite sides of the world and yet we were sort of in similar, but yet very, very different locations you and i i mean yeah. i was in, i was in bali in 1986 <laughs> most of our listeners were probably not alive at that point uh, <laughs> and i do remember the spiritual things and I, I remember seeing several times when i was there when i was only there for five or four or five days they had cremations on the beach i don't know if they're still doing that there but it was it was part of their culture and i yeah. watched a couple they would carry a body there and then they would have this thing set up and they would actually cremate them right on the beach. Yeah, they do that more in India. They do cremations in in Bali now every five years because they're so expensive, which is really interesting because you're like, well, what do you do with the bodies until then? So they bury them and then dig them back up. Yeah. Isn't that, it's wild. Anyways, it's just interesting to get outside of your box and to be like, this is not the only way to do things. One more interesting thing that we did which was kind of cool because uh, Robin has been there for 31 years. And she was like, hey, do you want to go to the village where they hang the placentas from trees? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) So we drove with one of her friends who's a tour guide, drove us out there. And in Bali, they bury their placentas. Everyone, everyone knows where their placentas are. They do not throw them away like we do. Even if they don't have like a, home or they're traveling all the time, they would throw them in the ocean because then they would know that they could go to the ocean to visit that placenta. So their belief system is that the placenta is the sibling of the baby. So when they bury it and do a ritual for the burial, it's almost like honoring a twin that passed for every one of them. So, but this one town, this one village, they hang the placentas from the trees. So I was like, this is wild. I was imagining like bloody placentas hanging from trees, right? But you get there and they have (laughs) their own little forest in the middle of the village that is specifically a cemetery for the placentas. And after the birth, the dad will leave and they put it inside of a coconut and use twine and hang it in the tree. You can see them. I have pictures. I'll post it in my stories. Um, but it's pretty cool. And then eventually the twine breaks and it falls down and then it decomposes to the earth, you know? So that was really cool. We went and we walked around and we talked to one of the villagers and she told us the the story about like her birth and a local traditional birth worker died there about five years ago. So they don't have anybody local to help them deliver. So now they all go to hospitals, which is oh. very sad. Yeah. 
but that was a really interesting thing. Like there's nothing in the world besides Bali that I think is like that with placentas. So that was really fun for me as a birth geek. Yeah. And now I'm home and getting acclimated. I have a couple of people in their due window. One mom who's attempting to have a vaginal birth after two cesareans and another mom who's had three births in in uh, in the hospital with Kaiser and she's having her fourth home birth. I mean, her fourth birth at home. And she's just been so like talking about what a spiritual experience this has been to do this so completely different. And so of course that warms my heart. So getting excited. That sounds good. Sounds good for you. And, and I did something a little different. I went to uh, teach in Haiti and I... Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing at Mama Baby Haiti. They're lovely, lovely people there. It's in Cap Haitian or just outside of Cap Haitian, which is a village in the or town in the northern part of the island. And you can only get there by flying Spirit Airlines, which was always a treat from Fort Lauderdale. So I, I got there and I was picked up by my American colleagues that were there, Rebecca, Lauren, and Maddie, all from Minnesota, who were coming to do a week or 10 days of volunteering. And we went and we met uh, the owner of one of the owners of Mama Baby Hades, American man named Fernando. He was very gracious. And then our translator for the weekend through the courses that I taught was Andres. I just want to give a special shout out to him. They speak only French or Creole. I didn't speak either. So, you know, we had a translator for all the classes. There were a couple of the midwives that spoke English, but I don't think any of the students did. And so I taught reach to them only. We only had one day with the students and the the second day was only with the midwives. And so I focused on breach. And while I was there, you know, I learned a lot about the country. You said that, you know, the average person in Bali makes about $200 a month. The average person in Haiti makes about two to $300 a year. It's probably the poorest country in the, in the world, actually. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it's a beautiful setting, but unfortunately, you know, it's, it's got a lot of trash everywhere. They're often burning the trash. The The waterways and stuff are sort of filled with trash. The The government there, I won't get into it in detail, but the government there is really non-existent. And when it is, it is, it is corrupt. Cor- corrupt and also they, they go after people who are against them and they'll just bulldoze their entire village or their entire neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The money is never reaches where it's supposed to go. So that way, but the, as you said, the people... Ex- are extremely happy that I got to meet. You know, they're very simple. They're not they're not tied up in their screens all day long. They all have phones. It's really interesting. <laughs> but they're not they're not the things that matter to them are life and death and food and getting and family. And that's what yeah. really matters. And you know, you said traveling was a blessing and yeah, it is except when you get a, a GI bug then it's not so much of a blessing. <laughs> and the landscape was beautiful. It, as you said, we got out a little bit one day we went up to the Citadel, which was a fortress that was built by Henri Christophe, I think, who was the slave rebellion leader who became the first and only king, I think, of Haiti in the early 1800s. And it's a it's an amazing structure that you built in the middle of freaking nowhere on a high on a steep hill. And you wonder, you know, I mean, obviously, they had lots of work. They had apparently 20,000 men were built this thing in a in a matter of years, like three or four years, but maybe it was seven. I don't know. But it's a pretty amazing structure for for how things could be built 200 years ago with, you know, with no machinery, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen the pyramids and I've seen 
Borobudur and Prambanan, which are both in Indonesia, and they're magnificent, and they're hundreds and hundreds of years older. But still, the idea that this could be built back then was pretty amazing. And I agree with you with the traffic. I've been in third world countries a lot, and the traffic is, you know, there's no lines on the roads, and people just drive, and there's little tam-tams or, or tap-taps, or whatever you want to call the three-wheelers going by, and everybody's on scooters and motorcycles and bicycles, and cars are driving by, and it's honk and go, but it's still a lot of fun. <laughs> and I was never worried. When I was in Vietnam or, or Africa, it was the same sort of thing. And, you know, some people say the best drivers in the world are in Los Angeles or whatever. That's not true. <laughs> the best drivers in the world are in, are in these countries because they got us there. They got us home. They got us where we had to go. Yeah. And it was funny because, you know, there are no freeways or anything like that. And sometimes to go 20 miles would take you two and a half hours because you have, you know, windy roads, narrow roads blocked off. Sometimes there'd be an accident and you'd be backed up for hours. This didn't happen to me, but it did happen to uh, two of the Americans who went off to a village for a couple of days while I was stay while I stayed in Camp Haitian. So it was a very good experience. I, I actually would go back. So we're there very long. No, only four days. Yeah, that's a quick, that's quick turnaround for such a big travel. It is, it is. Yeah. But you know, there's not, it's not like a place you're going to go and go on holiday. Yeah. So you either go to do volunteer work, you go to work. Oh, and I got to do a, I was up just about to fall asleep one night and they came up and got me and said, can you come down and, and stitch this woman up? So oh. I actually, I actually, yeah, she had a partial third repaired. degree and yeah. I, and I, and I repaired it and just so that the midwives and the, the students could watch and yeah. it was fun. It was fun to do that. Three and a half, like, a, like, like Robin said about the repair that she did. Three and a half. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that bad. This, <laughs> The sphincter was mostly still intact, but it yeah. was par partially torn. Yeah. So that it was an easy repair for me, but, but, you know, they don't have supplies. I brought them some Pitocin. I brought them some Misoprostol that I, that I picked up here in the United States and they could use, any, they can use anything, you know, yeah. suture material, gloves, uh, sterile supplies, anything that, that people can give them. So uh, people should go to Mama Baby Haiti, their website. And if you want to donate to something, I, that would be great. Or Bumi Sahat, either or, one. Or <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, Robin promoted that pretty well last week or, or yeah. two weeks ago. So, so that's that. Before we get into our theme today, which my theme today is the basically the hollow words that that come that come across like this quote: "Someone needs to be held accountable." Unquote. And the reason it's I'm saying that is because you know since I got back, I've been catching up on the news and stuff like that. And there's lots of stuff coming out of. Sacramento and Washington and other places where they're holding investigations and always saying somebody needs to be held accountable. And it's like, it's like the guy in Princess Bride who keeps saying inconceivable. You know, I don't think those words mean what they think it means because no one's ever held accountable. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have to, I have to yeah. say, I watched um, Bill Maher, the most recent Bill Maher. Do you ever watch Bill Maher? Yeah. When, when there's something on it that I want to see, yeah. but I don't, I, it's not a regular viewing thing for me. So he had Russell Brand, who's one of my favorites on, who was wild on his panel. And he also had Bernie Sanders on, but it was, um, I just thought of you so many times, us actually so many times listening because they were talking about how it's coming out now that they made so many mistakes when it came to the coronavirus and how they handled it. And, and I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It doesn't really matter. You'll never get an apology and no one will be held accountable. <laughs> exactly. 
feel a little validating that, you know, we were the odd ones out and uh, it's coming around that we were, we're not as crazy as people tried to make us out to be. No, when people, when people have solid ground to stand on, they don't need to make you seem crazy. Mm-hmm. Gaslighting people and making them seem crazy is the, is the tool of somebody who doesn't really have an argument. This is true. Right. This is true. I want another shout out just briefly to one of our listener fellow travelers named Kat. You might have seen this email. I don't know if you got it or I just got it. But what Kat did was something amazing. She says, hey, Dr. Stu and Bliss, I listened to your latest episode and heard that you don't have a running list of episodes. Well, I figured that I would give you a gift of a list. <laughs> I think we do have it, but that is a lovely thing that she, she did. She says, I own a virtual assisting company, and I'm going to ch- shout it out, Chartered Creatives. And we handle tasks like these. Our paths have actually crossed before. I have been the virtual assistant for BirthFit for 3.5 years. I love the message you both spread. And I'm a huge advocate for birthing on your own terms. I went through your Apple podcast episodes and just pulled the episode number, title, and description and added them to a Google sheet. That way you can search for certain words or episode numbers. Thank you. That was so kind of you. Yeah. So Kat, she's the founder of Chartered Creatives, LLC. And I'm super super happy to give her a free PR (laughs) shout out because, you know, obviously our fireside chats don't have any topics. So you, one of us is going to have to go through them, Emily, Scout, (laughs) 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 and and figure out what we talked about at each one of those podcasts because it just says fireside chat one, two, three, four, whatever it was. So anyway, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Anything else on your uh, greetings list before we get off into uh, the deep, dark, dirty stuff? (laughs) Of your mind, the crevices. Of my mind. No, I'm a, It's really nice to see you and it's nice to be home. So yeah, it was lovely to be there, but you know, you start to miss your your people. So I'm glad to be home and I'm glad to be chatting with you. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's see how glad you are in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always glad. (laughs) Okay. Hey, Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsors. Yeah, we're going to talk about Needed. And, you know, that's the product that I've been using, and I think you probably have too. Yeah, and, I love it. Uh, yeah. So tell me why. Well, you know, we're very selective about who we partner with. And Needed is an amazing company that's women-owned and really has done the work to bring really quality products to the market. One of them is Julie Sawaya, who was a client of mine. She has two home births. And we did do an episode on her. So you guys can go back and check her out. because. It's really amazing they've done. And I love the products because of that. And also I I really love supporting a company that has a supplement that is helpful for women who have nausea. So they have their prenatal vitamins in a powder form and also in another form that's called they call essentials, which is just the basics. So that if a woman is having nausea, which happens quite frequently, they can still take their prenatal vitamins. So yeah, Julian Ryan, they hand-selected every ingredient and nutrient dose, and they spent thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature, to come up with the best possible combination of substances in their products, which, which include things like their prenatal vitamin, which you just mentioned, which comes in that powdered form, which you love. And they have a pre and probiotic, they have a collagen supplement, they have a stress support, sleep and relaxation support, hydration support. They have choline and CoQ10. And they also have a men's health plan as well. So get your husband's <laughs> online. Go check them out. You go to thisisneeded.com. 
and use the code word birthing instincts. When you do that, you'll save 20% off your one-time order. So that's thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts for 20% off your one-time order. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. This is my uh, administrative news section here. And I have one from, um, well, I titled it ACOG Irony, and you'll get it in a minute. So this is from February 27th. Doctors from the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and gynecologists were stunned when they arrived at ACOG's annual medical conference in National Harbor, Maryland, only to learn that their booth had been canceled by the host due to their pro-life views. Okay, now, the only reason I bring this up is not to be pro-life or pro-choice. Mm-hmm. The idea is that ACOG, which to is convince. supposed to represent all physicians and, and women, know that half the country is pro-life and half the country is pro-choice. And yeah. they've decided politically to exclude anybody who's pro-life from their platform. So they're not representing half the physicians which they purport to represent. What's so yeah. funny about this is that they said, this is very interesting considering the theme of this year's conference. You know what the theme is? No. What's Building the- bridges. <laughs> that is ironic. <laughs> what? Yeah. It got lost on them, I guess. <laughs> yes. However, ACOG is showing yet again that they have no desire to build bridges with those of us who disagree with them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Garbage. Anyway, just that's my organization. <laughs> right. Oh, speaking of that, I should, I have to say something. You know, I said the medical board had been investing in me for a Facebook post and how they finally I don't know if I told you this, but I think I did. But they finally dismissed the case. They couldn't go any further. So that's done. Good. Less than a week Less than a week later, I get a letter from them saying they're fining me $500. <laughs> because, because on my website, it says that I was board certified in 1989. And I was and I made a fellow of the gyne- of American College of Gynecology in 1990. Both of which statements are true. But in the letter, they say, I didn't say which board I was board certified from. Wow. <laughs> now I'm an obstetrician and I'm a fellow of the American College OBGYN and it's chronologically in order that you get board certified before you can become a fellow. And so I sent this to my lawyer and my lawyer got outraged. She said this is effing harassment. Yeah. And, and so we have to we have to set up a hearing, but you know what this does? It costs me more money. Yeah. It right? it would cost you less to just pay the 500 probably, right? Oh, I'll never pay the 500. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay if it costs more. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is okay if it's cost more because it's absolute principle. The idea that that first of all, I think later in some other some other handout in my thing, it does say the American Board of OBGYN, but in this one handout, which is like a informed information for patients, it just says I was board certified. Now everyone yeah. in their right yeah. mind would know what that means. Done. It's, yeah, right. harassment. Right. And by the way, why were they going through my website so detailed like that? Hmm? Do they do that to all the members of o- all the California physicians? Hmm? <laughs> okay. So on a more serious note, this is just a brief note for people to understand that about the vaccine. And again, that, that in Singapore, one of the world's most mRNA vaccinated countries, the stillbirth rate has doubled in 2022. And the mRNA jabs alter menstrual cycles in women. We know that. There was Naomi Wolf came out with a whole big, uh, I think she was on, who was she on with? She was on somebody's podcast and also showed an Israeli study in June showed that sperm production falls after the Pfizer shot. And it says worse birth rates are falling in many mRNA countries. The trend, although the trend predated the the rollout of the vaccine in some countries, but it accelerated nine months after the widespread rollout in the the jabs of women of childbearing age. 
So even though birth rates were falling in most Western countries anyway, it's now fallen dramatically. And I just read recently that in Japan has a real problem because one third of their citizens are over 65 and their birth rate is 1.3, where replacement value is needed to be about 2.1. Why do we need to replace? To support the people over 65. <laughs> yeah, but but if you're not looking at like governmental kind of things and you're actually looking at the environment and nature, we don't we don't need to replace. There's a natural thing that's happening that's probably actually really good for the damage that we've done to our planet. So well, I would disagree, but that's fine for us to disagree on that. If you took yeah. if you took all the people in the world and gave them an acre or so in Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, the rest of the world would be empty. Yeah. And I'm gonna tell you, I went scuba diving in in Bali and the the underworld, the underwater world there is, you can tell it's dying. So it's very obvious that. Yeah, but that may not be necessarily from just the population. That may be from what some countries are doing when they shouldn't be doing it. Falling birth rate is concerning because if we have social welfare systems, as we do in almost every country, then the young people support old people. That's the whole, that was the whole idea in the 64 when they came up with the Great Society. And at that point, there was something like 60 or 70 workers for every person that was retired. Now we're down to like, I think, 12 or 11 or 10 workers for every... It's not sustainable unless, no. you, have, unless you have more children or do something. But again, no one's held accountable for these dumb decisions about, about Medicare and Social Security. And in these other countries, they have real problems because who's going to do the work when all these older people are still alive? Or are we going to end up having them, you know, have euthanasia and uh, just ration healthcare away from old people and let them die? Well, we can we can go down a deep tunnel on this, but in Japan, they actually do support their elders. They don't actually need the government to do that for them. So if that system started to dissolve, they would actually that's take care true. because that's what they do. And great. I'm glad our systems are falling apart because they're broken. So they should fall apart so that we can actually create something that actually works. Yeah, I would always say that it would be nice to have a plan for something that actually works before you let the other thing fall apart, generally speaking. But that's okay. What is that, uh, what is that saying, Stu? The one... Um, <laughs> Which one? <laughs> the, the one, like, invention comes... Creation, invention comes from... Uh, you know what I'm saying. But, you know, sometimes you can't think of what the solution is until you have a crisis and you have to create right. something different. And, yeah. you know, when we're comfortable, when we're comfortable and we keep doing the same thing, I mean, that's why things are so, because nobody actually wants to do the work or stand up to do something different. So that's okay. We have a different perspective, but uh, I don't, I think, I think people having less babies right now is not necessarily such a bad thing. And that's a terrible thing to say from a midwife. Because that's how we that's how we make a living but i have bigger visions than just making a living well we might get some email on that we'll see how it goes okay okay uh along that line my friend dr poppy daniels was on a panel called OBGYN speak and people can find it on rumble and i'll put the link in the show notes um and on that panel where was christiana northrup and uh, james thorpe and three or four other really well-spoken people and they talked about, uh, you know, the the problems with the the whole thing with the vaccines and all that other stuff and the things that they're seeing in their own practices. And then Peter McCullough and, and James Thorpe came out with a statement that they said that the 
vaccine, the COVID vaccine should be labeled pregnancy category X. All right. Now, if people don't know what that means, there's categories A, B, C, and D, and X, I think. And they're based on research. And since there is no research on something, or it's known to cause harm, like thalidomide would be pregnancy category X, okay? DES would be pregnancy category X. And there's certain other like psychotropic drugs, and they're also related to category X. But they say it should be category X that means that the risk of using the drug in pregnant women clearly outweighs any possible benefit. And people people by now have to know who Peter McCullough is, so I won't go into that. And James Thorpe I, is a... You don't? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. He's a world-renowned cardiologist, and he's like one of the most published people in the world. And he's come out very verbally, and then he's been punished for that. The American Board of Medical Specialties tried to retract his boards. He's got over 400 or maybe even more than that published peer-reviewed articles out in the world and cardiology and things like that. And he's come out uh, with all the myocarditis my and all that other stuff that's going on. <laughs> and he's made yeah. a name for himself. And he's appeared on Joe Rogan. And he's appeared on, you know, all the big shows, probably mm -hmm. maybe even was on Bill Maher. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Uh, but he points out that the well-intentioned pregnant mothers have been getting injected with synthetic lipid nanoparticles laced with long-lasting mRNA coating for the Wuhan Institute of Virology spike protein. He says, how could this be happening with no mutagenicity or teragenicity studies? How could gl good clinical practice by doctors be abandoned? And I'm just making, I'm not going to pound this to, in, into submission, but he also notes that there are more than a dozen papers concluding that COVID vaccines are safe in pregnancy, but he believes each paper has critical flaws, including not being randomized, having no comparative group, being under limited time windows, having incomplete capture of clinical events. But more importantly, he also notes the conflict of interest with the American College of Gynecology, who received an undisclosed sum of money from the White House HHS COVID-19 Community Core Fund to promote vaccination. And, you know, we've talked about on the podcast before, Bliss, about how ACOG is telling us how to counsel people. And if they choose not to get the vaccine, then it's our fault. We must have counseled them wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's yeah. so my question for ACOG or any of these people is, will anyone be held accountable? <laughs> <laughs> You know, Stu, it, this, it's interesting as you were talking about the vaccine being category label X, it made me think about in when I was in Bali, if you go to like a little store or something where they sell cigarettes, all of the cigarette packages have very, very disturbing photos of people having like, you know, the little holes, tracheotomy. Um, or their gums being totally, or they're lying in a hospital bed. On every package of cigarettes that pe people buy are these images that you're like, how in the world do you still smoke? And in the airport, it, on all of the big cartons, it says smoking kills. And I thought, this is such an interesting social experiment because nobody's stopping buying cigarettes. They still do it, you know? And why, do, why am I bringing that up? Because it makes me think of the frustration that I have sometimes of like talking to people about going into the hospital and all of the challenges that people are facing with obstetrical violence and, you know, being induced and not being respected and everybody's in an outrage about it, but they still keep going to the hospital. <laughs> why? <laughs> like, I'm just like, why? And that just to me, that just, I don't why, know. Why do I keep drinking Diet Coke? Why, why, do, do, why do, why do I, when I'm in an airport, go to one of those stupid little stores and buy a three musketeers bar and a bag of Cheetos to take on the plane. <laughs> you know, why? I don't know. Anyway. So well, if you even 
put an X on it. I don't know if uh, that's going to stop people from doing it. It's medical brainwashing, Blister. Yeah, it's every brainwashing. <laughs> okay, speaking of medical brainwashing, I have my first, we're going to get into some letters and voicemails, and I and I, I wanted to uh, tie this in. This one's about sort of inciting fear and insensitive robotic policies at hospitals there in doctor's offices. Um, this is from Bronwyn, and she writes, Hi, Dr. Great. Stewart. What? A great name. Oh, yeah. Bronwyn. I like that. She's written us before. She's written me before. Yeah. I've been listening to Dr. Oh, hi, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. It's caught on. Bliss, it's it's definitely caught on, by the way. Well, of course, because you said it. They're going to do it. Okay. I've been listening to Dr. Stu since he co-hosted with Brian. A very dedicated listener, follower. I just finished listening to episode 299. That's one called Medical Brainwashing. Mm -hmm. So apt, she says. And I'm completely infuriated mm -hmm. by Carly's story that we told in that Medical Brainwashing episode about mm -hmm about the unnecessary worrying that they gave her. Yeah. Unfortunately, it hits close to home. I have five kids. Number one and number two were straightforward, uncomplicated, full-term vaginal births in the hospital. Both times I thought the hospital experience sucked, and so we planned a home birth for number three. That didn't happen. Instead, I had a placental abruption at 26 weeks and four days and ended up with a classical cesarean section for a one-pound, 10-ounce baby who's now 14 years old and very healthy. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that's a you no. Know, that is part of the medical industrial complex that is doing good when we need it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. NICUs are very valuable. They do great work on these babies, and I don't want that to ever be um, assumed not. The fact that she had a classical C-section at 26 weeks needs explanation for me. Yeah. Because it depends if the baby was malpositioned, then yes, then that would be indicated. But otherwise. Want to, you want to try to conserve her fertility if you can avoid doing a classical. But I'm not going to get into that because I don't know anything about that. So fast forward two years and I got pregnant with number four, having done mountains of reading and consulting. I knew I wasn't going to consent to an automatic C-section, but as you both know, there isn't a lot of support for VBAC with classical or even with a history of vaginal births. And so that's true. Yeah. We're all taught that a classical C-section, a true classical, which goes through vertically through the fundus of the uterus, is a very high risk for rupture. Now, when we say very high risk, it's still probably less than 10%, but, that's, but it's not an acceptable risk in the medical world. But that's, of course, not always our decision to make. Right. Right, okay. So every midwife within a two-hour radius turned me down, as they should, all right? They, they really probably sort of have to. What do you think about that? That they all, turned, they all turned her down? It might be in our law. Yeah, it might be so in their law, or it might be in their, you know, their... Fears. You've got fears. They're their fear of retribution. So they can't. Yeah. For me personally, if it's not legal, if it's not spelled out in the law and it's something that the person is informed and knows the risk, then I would consider. But I understand because if you do something outside, like recently here in Santa Barbara, I had a kind of someone was asking if I would take a VBAC after three cesareans. And I think I reached out to you and asked your opinion about it. But then I needed to reach out to the local midwives and say, hey, do you ever, would you ever consider this? Because if I do something that far outside of what the standard of care is with the people around me and something does happen, then it's a lot easier to be prosecuted. And it's very unfortunate that we feel like we have to think about that. But if you end up losing your license and going to jail, then you can't, you can no longer help more people. 
That's an excellent point. I mean, that's that's great. I was hoping that's what you were going to say. <laughs> but most agreed to come with me to the hospital and act as bodyguard. I love that. Act as a bodyguard. That was the plan. Then came the 20-week ultrasound. It was done at some big hospital where my preemie was born. So tons of post-traumatic stress disorder triggers when I walked in there. After the tech spent way too long on everything, an MFM came in, did not introduce herself, and said, you're having a C-section. I assumed she heard it was in my chart that I was planning a VBAC. I responded that I was here today for an ultrasound, so let's talk about that before the birth that is still hopefully months away. She turned on a color Doppler function and showed me that there was abnormal flow on my anterior placenta, presumably right along the scar line. Mm -hmm. I knew what it meant. I'd read how accreta happened and how deadly it could be. Cue full meltdown panic. They recommended ultrasounds every four weeks. And once I got back in with the regular OB, I asked why. Because mm-hmm. she, she says, there is nothing you can do in your daily life that alters the course of an accreta. And those ultrasounds were incredibly stressful for my entire family, getting childcare and so on. He agreed mm-hmm. and said, maybe we'll do one more at 35 weeks. Good guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he forgot. I think he forgot. <laughs> At 35 weeks, he ordered a growth ultrasound where my placenta was much higher, but no one looked for accreta. When I asked later, everyone thought I was overreacting and they didn't think I had had it. Long story short, at 40 weeks and three days, I had a lovely V-back where the OB and the midwife sat by my side as my daughter emerged. I wow. Choked, I get choked up. Followed by her completely fine, intact placenta. All that worry was for nothing. There's a conspiratorial part of me that wonders as the MFM went looking for things to talk me into a C-section. Huh. And I don't doubt that that's true. Will, will that MFM ever be held accountable? No. No. I don't think so. <laughs> you're, getting, you're, getting the, you're getting the message of this, of this podcast. Okay. One of my biggest complaints about ultrasound is what do you do with the information and how accurate is it? In this case, I spent half a pregnancy planning my estate. Yeah. For a misdiagnosis. Ultrasound is treated like it's no big deal until you find something, and then you have to do something with that finding, even if it's wrong, as it was for both Carly in our previous episode and me. Yep. One more quick complaint about it. When I got pregnant with number five, that same midwife agreed to take me at home, but she still wanted to verify a placental location. And I think, you know, that's reasonable, right? Looking back, I wish I had advocated that if we'd had to do it, then someone who was allowed to talk me through it should do it, not some hamstrung tech who's only allowed to tell me that the sex of the baby. Yeah. That's annoying as hell. I mean, when you're sitting there and the way the med- maternal fetal medicine offices work, where they have a tech do it, the tech's not allowed to tell you anything, but they might be going, hmm, or they might be spending a lot of time looking at one area and you ask them what's going on. The doctor will be in shortly to tell you. I mean, that these people, these techs, they are hamstrung because they're very smart. They know what they're doing and they, they probably know ultrasound as well or better than most of the OBs anyway. And they're not allowed yeah. to say anything by the hierarchy of medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I have ahead. a question for you. Yeah. I'm a little confused. So she had a classical incision. So you agreed that no one, no midwife should take her for a VBAC. That classical incision didn't change the scar. So I didn't, why? I didn't exactly say no midwife should take her. I said no midwife would likely take her. Because the recommendation is so powerful. And you said that's, they shouldn't have. Yeah. Well, in, that, in, their, in their community, it's, yeah. I, for me personally, if I was doing this and she wanted and could find somebody to do a VBAC with her in the hospital and they would sit by her and do that, like this guy did, or this mm-hmm. doctor did, 
That's mm-hmm. tremendous. Yeah. But other than, other than that, it's a big risk to your career to to something on the line for that. Yeah. But why would that risk change after she had a VBAC? It doesn't change. It's still the same bar and same uterus. Yes. It goes down slightly when you've had a successful VBAC, then, then it risk does go down slightly. No one really knows because nobody's, there's no data on VBAC, you know, second VBAC after a previous classical C-section. There's no data on that. That's crazy. And then, and then no one will let you do that. So most of the time you're going to have a cesarean, but if you do find someone who allows you to do that, then the next time you have a better chance of actually being able to have better statistics and more options. But that probably would be eliminated because most people don't have friggin' cojones to even let you try if you are willing to risk your life. Well, I think most doctors think if you've had a classical C-section, the risk of rupture is like 50% or something really ridiculous number. And and they, they just don't know. But I'm telling you, it's single digits. But it's yeah. still, you know, it's just higher than the one in 200 or whatever that we quote with a single low transverse, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Blah. So I had 30 minutes of terror while my active baby avoided being measured. And she spent extra time looking at the placenta, but couldn't tell me why. Three days of my active baby going completely silent and one week to wait on the results. Finds that Finally, somebody calls her in a week later and tells her she has a posterior placenta. Great. But couldn't the tech have just told her that? Yeah, it would have been. Better for her mental health, yes. Yep. So she says, to sum up, what do you do? Oh, she had a beautiful uh, home birth with the with the fifth baby. Yay! So to sum up, what do you do with the info you find? How accurate is it? And, and can the person doing it tell you what they are doing and seeing you instead of going through layers of radiologists? Hmm. And the answer is, yeah. Find somebody who will do that. Like in our community, I, I used to do ultrasounds and I would tell people right away, there, are, there were many other options for the midwives in, in LA area where they could send somebody and get a re, get a response right away. If this is the kind of thing that's going on there, go someplace else. Even if you have to drive to another town, go someplace else. Don't yeah. don't give these people the business. One of our great sponsors is Element. That's L-M-N-T. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. As Bliss likes to say, none of the BS. It's got uh, lots of salt, no sugar. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. But as we always say, it's great for laboring moms. It's great for birth workers. It's great for birth workers who happen to be in the tropics. Uh, I'm planning to take uh, my element with me to my trip in Haiti, where it's going to be hot and sweaty every day. And I'm going to be using that. It's easy to pack. comes in these small little packets, which make the weight and packing it in your little tiny backpack suitcase. Pretty easy thing to do. Comes in multiple flavors. My favorite, of course, is the raspberry salt, but it comes in grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raw unflavored mango chili, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. It's got, again, no processed foods in it. It's really healthy for you. A lot of athletes, professional athletes use it. You might have seen some of their commercials on Instagram. We support them because they support us. And if you go to Drink Element, that's Drink L-M-N-T, Dot com and use the code word birthing instincts or backslash birthing instincts, you will get a free sample pack with every order. That's drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts for a free sample pack with every order. Thanks very much. Thanks, Element. Next letter is a, actually next letter isn't the letter. It's a voicemail. Okay. And this is from Marissa. And this is about retained placenta. And I have two little short little uh, things on retained placenta. 
which I think we've done a podcast on before. Maybe we haven't on Retain Placenta. We've done it on Accreta and Previa, but I don't know that we ever done one. Have we done one on Retain Placenta? If we haven't, we should save that so that we can do it on the topic. Well, we'll bring it up now and then we'll, do you want to save it? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll save these two. Okay. All right. So Marissa and Christine, we're going to get to your letters at another time. There you go. Okay. So this next letter is from Kylie and it wants advice for an unhappy hospital worker. So we've sort of delved into this topic before, but let me just read her message here. She says, Glasses on. Hi, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. She puts, parentheses, she puts, sorry, I had to. <laughs> I love it. My name is Kylie and I'm a mother of three, an LDRP nurse and a student midwife. I love listening to the podcast on my way to and from work. It's so refreshing to know that there are other sensible people in the world and it makes me feel <laughs> like I'm not alone. You know what? That's really true. When you get, when you have a gathering of like-minded people, it's really, it really does help. That's when I listen to Dr. Poppy's group of six or seven people, physicians or nurses, all like-minded like me, very helpful for me. We have a letter coming up that talks about how do I know that information is reliable? So we're going to get to that in a second. What were you going to say? I love that she says sensible. <laughs> and it does help. It helps us too. You know, for the beginning, we felt like we were just putting our butt to the wind and just being like, well, we have to speak the truth, what our truth is. And it's nice to know that, you know, we have fellow travelers that feel the same way. It's great. You know, it's interesting because we do hold ourselves accountable, you and I. We try, we, yeah. Because our integrity means everything to us. Yeah, yeah. And when we err, we correct it or we apologize. And we do, I mean, in my personal life as well. Okay. And I, I find that professionally, it'd be very rare. Humanitarianly, it's rare. That's true too. Okay. <laughs> she gets, she says, Kylie goes on, she says, I get a huge rush of anxiety before working at the hospital. Mm. Tell you, that's no way to live. Yeah. To have a job where you, 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 you get a knot in your stomach. And here's why. She says, I constantly fear for my license and for my patients. I have helped at home births for almost three years now and have never felt unsafe while at a home birth or birth center birth. However, I have seen many emergencies in the hospital that I just don't see at home. Yeah. Most likely because we are causing them. Yes. I feel like are. I'm, yeah, I feel like mm -hmm. I'm serving the system instead of serving the mothers and babies like I went into this field to do. Yes. She, Kylie, by you're officially now a fellow traveler. Okay. <laughs> After about a year as an RN in the hospital, I decided I'm going to the direct entry program to become a CPN because I no longer have any interest in being a hospital midwife. I wondered if you had any advice for a baby midwife or anything you wish you had known entering the birth world. Thank you and keep fighting the good fight. So I did write her back because I did a quick little research. Um, and I, I said, I don't know if you've listened to the following podcast, but it might be a good place to start to seek some answers to your questions about how, to, how a baby midwife makes advances in the world. Because on podcast 277, 268, 255, and 225, Bliss, you and I discussed this session. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about this a lot. <laughs> well, it comes up a lot. It comes up about lifestyle. One of them is about lifestyle or taking care mm -hmm. of yourself. And another one's about, I think one of them was with Lindsay Milis when she talked about when she was working in a hospital, she felt like she was witness to a scene of a crime, that sort yeah. of thing. So those, you know, it, it comes up in many, multiple different podcasts. Yeah. You know, the thing that I would say is to remember that home birth or, or out of hospital birth and community birth and midwives are not totally 
uh, innocent in regards to these issues as well. So it's important for you to keep your integrity, like we were just talking, and what's important to you, and also be willing to stand up for what you believe in in that arena too, because it's better. I mean, I remember working in the hospital as a doula and a montrese. You know, there definitely are less issues, but you still have to be have your convictions and really stay true to what you know inside of your soul, because it can be eroded um, in this profession as well, if you are not careful. Yeah, I mean, we did a we did a podcast recently where we talked about a midwife that was doing unnecessary vaginal exams or something or rupturing membranes on people. I don't know if you remember that or not. But, you know, the midwife asked us, what, how do I say something to her? Or what do I do in that situation? Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. This next one is a, this one is a good dilemma, because it's from Jackie, and she talks about, I think she's from New Jersey, and she talks about which data to choose. And and I think that's a good question. Yeah. She says, hello, I just want to start off by saying I love you too so much. Thank I've written you. on Instagram a few times. I have been a labor nurse for the last eight years. I have bachelor's of science in nursing and started grad school to get my CNM, MSM degree last year. However, I knew in my heart that that was not the outcome I wanted. So I left grad school and pursued education in MEAC school. MEAC is what? M-E-A-C? M-E-A-C. The MEAC accredited, I don't know what it stands for, but that's that's what you have to go to one of those schools in order to get a license. Okay, yeah. to become a CPM LM. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in New, in New Jersey to boot, there's no preceptors here. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, she has to go in a different state, I guess. Anyway, I digress. My question to you both hopefully will make sense. Although I have two degrees in science, I'm not your typical nurse, never was. Never really subscribed to the medical model of care if you know what I'm saying. We do. We do know what you're saying. <laughs> Being a nurse in a hospital during COVID was something truly outrageous and even more so has opened my eyes to, quote, science, unquote. Oh, boy. (laughs) Pharmaceutical companies, agendas, whatever you want to call it. So my question is this. I listened to you discuss about research data on this and outcomes on that and trying to really narrow it down for us to understand it, which I appreciate. However, what data and research are we going to listen to? Are we as medical practitioners seeking out confirmation bias articles only? Are we now having to search for who is funding these articles? Um, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, you do. Okay. There's so many opposing articles these days that I'm at a loss to trust any of them. Like yeah. when you discuss data on, say, GBS infection, what makes you believe this data but not the other data or vitamin K, that sort of thing. I hope this makes sense. Would love to know your thoughts. So, And then she says, also, it would be amazing if you could link any articles that you discuss on your shows. And I just said, I made a note here that says we usually do. So Yeah. Sometimes we obviously things fall through the crack or sometimes we just mention things in passing. So Bliss, do you have a thought on on how you pick which articles or which data? Because I certainly do, but I want to hear yours first. Well, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm very lucky to ask you and you enjoy going through these a little more than I do. So sometimes I'll ask you. So I, I do have that benefit. I think the other part of it is definitely looking at the funding and reading through how the study was done how, like how big was the, um, I don't know if you call it a cohort. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. Co- the cohort. Yeah. How many, how many, how many how patients were there? Was it like 12 mice? Was that what it yeah. was? Yeah. Um, and really like then what you get into is using your critical thinking skills to be able to evaluate whether or not all of those pieces make sense to you as being an outcome that really is valid. 
I mean, for me, that's, that's kind of how I decide when I look at those things. So it's not easy. I mean, I've said a few times that I think we should do a a whole episode on how to critically look at, at studies, but it's not an easy thing. It, It takes a lot of work and effort to go through and really do that evaluation on your own. And it is difficult. It is difficult to know what is coming, like what studies are being done because they really are interested in the science and really are interested in being objective and which ones are slanted and tainted because they want to get a specific outcome. Um, So that's how I do it. Yeah. Again, I agree with you. It's very difficult, especially when articles are coming out now that's saying that they've surveyed researchers and found that 60% or more of them admit that they falsified some of their data. And, and if 60% admit it, that probably means that 80% or 90% do it. So when you have falsified data, how do you know? And this, this is what I use. It's a basic common sense sort of thing that Mm -hmm. if the science agrees with your life experience and your common sense, it's probably valid. If it doesn't, it's probably not. And that's makes most sense. Like if we look at the science that came out that, that refuted natural immunity for this particular virus, all right, when natural immunity has always been the best form of immunity you have, and now they're telling you it's not, that would make, that would ring my common sensometer at a hundred decibels and tell me to think differently about that. But that is, that is a little bit of confirmation bias, right? Well, sure. Yeah. It's your life. I mean, everybody has confirmation bias that you can't get away from that. But I'm also saying that, that if the source that I usually rely on says something that seems weird to me, then I will not just confirm it because it's a reliable source. Right. Now, how do I know what's a reliable source? Well, a reliable source is somebody that hasn't been wrong repeatedly. Okay. So, you know, when you look at certain news organizations or certain journal articles or even journals themselves, and or certain authors like our two friends, Chervenak and Grunbaum, who are always hating on home birth. Am I going to believe anything that they say about home birth? If they came out with something in favor of home birth, I would probably still look at it very skeptically, simply because they have their reputation is tainted by the fact that, and I'm not picking, I am picking on these two guys, but I mean, I'm saying in general, if somebody has not told you the truth once, maybe they can apologize for it and move on. But if it's repeatedly wrong, as many of these articles have been, or many of our news organizations have been on many different topics, way out, you know, going way outside of medicine. They keep telling you the same thing. It's kind of like, you know, the idea that the mostly peaceful protests when they're standing in front of a burning building, or, you know, the Baghdad Bob was saying there's no nothing going on here in Baghdad as American tanks are rolling by. I mean, who are you going to believe? Yourself, you know, them or your lying eyes, I guess is the old statement. And then you have to take a really good look at the material and methods section. And that's what you were sort of saying. You have to look at the numbers in the cohort. You have to look at how they did the study. Was it a retrospective analysis of birth certificate data? And then you have to look and well, birth certificate data, what does that mean? I mean, who fills that out? You know, I mean, sometimes they just fill it out because it has to be filled out. And you don't know if there was a home, was a baby was born at home. Was there somebody there with them or not? You know, was it a skilled person? You don't know that. Right. You don't know, you know. There's a lot of things in that data that they're using. So, you know, retrospective studies are not always as good as randomized, double-blinded, controlled studies, which, which of course, are very hard to be to do with human subjects. You really can't do them. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, yeah, I think kind of what all of this is saying is it's very important for us, especially considering 
that there's so much emphasis on evidence-based and science and all of these things that you can't just look at little blip or a statement that says, research says, that's not enough anymore. You know, you have to, if you're going to base your information on that, you have to find a source that you feel is legitimate and or don't base it purely on the science, going back to your instincts and your common sense. But, you know, we are in a culture of, you know, news clips and and looking at headlines and stuff to make decisions. And when it comes to science, it's not black and white. And we need to be critically thinking a lot more than we do. And when people are overtly wrong and are proven to be wrong and, and again, are never held accountable, then you're right. It becomes a quagmire. You don't know because... Those people are not eliminated from the from the the topic. They're still out there pushing their point of view and whatever else. And if that fits the confirmation bias of someone who wants to hear that information, then that will get regurgitated over and over again. And even though it's it's false and open patently false. So again, every the problem is most people do not take the time to read right. deeper than the headline and maybe the first paragraph. Right. And usually you'll find the real meat of a of article in paragraph six or seven or on page two. And most people are not going to do that, especially with the way we look at news now by scrolling through TikTok or Instagram or whatever else. That's how we get our news. And look, they they know that whoever they is, right? So they're 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 intentionally putting headlines and information out, knowing that most people are not going to dig deeper. And then we perpetuate that and that information goes out there and that becomes what the, you know, majority of the population is talking about. And then it starts to feel like, oh, that must be true. Well, not necessarily. I also wanted to say MIAC. I looked it up because I felt like we should know what this is. Oh, thanks. Um, Midwifery Education Accreditation Council. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea oh. about I have no idea about their legitimacy or or whatever because if they're anything like ACOG, but hopefully they're they're a better organization. All right. Meh. On, what? <laughs> Meh. I Meh. I have opinions Meh. about that, but yes, moving on. Well, you want to say it? No, moving on. I think people want to hear your your opinion. It's all the stuff I just said earlier. Like okay. you know, midwifery and and the and our license and our testing and all of that stuff is not necessarily like that much better than the medical industrial complex. We have to be very careful. You know, as far as I'm concerned, midwives are the keepers. We're intended to be the keepers of natural birth. And I, I'm finding that we are being usurped by medicine and fear very similarly and litigation very similarly to what we complain about with the hospital. So got to be careful. Got to be careful. Yeah. This next letter is from Morgan. And it's more about, again, poor communication and lack of sensitivity after a miscarriage. And I thought it was a letter worth reading. So it's small print. So put my glasses on. Hi, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. (laughs) Okay. I've never written into a podcast or radio show like this before, but I feel as though you both appreciate the stories of your listeners. And I thought I'd share mine. And we do, Morgan. This January, I got pregnant for the first time on accident. I always love when they say it's on accident. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I think it wasn't planned, but I don't think it's an accident. All right. Despite it being unplanned, my husband and I were ecstatic and happy. But I realized I know nothing about being pregnant or giving birth, and I was lucky enough to have your show suggested to me by a friend. However, a week after the positive test, I had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. It was heartbreaking and a total emotional roller coaster. 
After a few conversations with people close to me, I was convinced to go see an OBGYN just to make sure everything was okay. So what do you think that, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. Okay, good, good. You're on, you're on pins and needles. Good. Yeah. All right. Speaking of pins and needles, I binge watched the first two seasons of Stranger Things oh. last week. <laughs> it's like, God, 17 hours of uh, TV watching in, in less than four days. It was pretty, pretty impressive though. Had me on <laughs> pins and needles. Okay. Despite having listened to your show, I went. And shockingly enough, I had my own story to add to your long list of bad stories. I went in six days after my miscarriage. After two days of blood tests to compare hormone levels, which is appropriate, I finally went in for my appointment. The first thing my OB asks is if my pregnancy test was, quote, really positive, unquote, as if I didn't have two positive tests still sitting at home. She then told me my HCG levels were so low that the test barely picked it up and subtly implied that it meant she didn't think I had been pregnant at all. So why would, why would you say that? I have no idea. Okay. And even if the doctor said something that was similar to that, that's how this, that's how Morgan interpreted what she said. You have to be more conscientious about how you say things. Yeah. I I may have cried the whole way home, called my mom and promised my husband, I would never be going back to that office. Fast forward to this week. I've become obsessed with learning about birth with your podcast and a few others. I love and appreciate the stories and I hear and the knowledge you share. But the reason I decided to write in was episode number 282, because somehow you use the term chemical pregnancy. And I had no idea what it meant. So I took to Google, right? Don't necessarily want people to use Google, but okay. It feels as though it described exactly what happened to me perfectly. And now I have one question. What has happened to our system with the professionals that couldn't tell me what happened to me? And I had to figure it out through a podcast with no no disrespect to the podcast. (laughs) How sad is that? Anyway, my husband and I are trying for a while. I'm not sure the details or how or where yet I know I will be avoiding a hospital birth as much as I can. Thank you both for your work, Morgan. Okay. So chemical pregnancy is is simply a pregnancy that you have, you know, you have conception, you have trophoblastic cells that begin to make HCG. Your pregnancy test is positive, but it never really implants well, or if it does, it doesn't implant very far. And then, and then something happens, usually it's a genetic boo-boo or something like that, and the body takes care of it, and your levels go up, and they don't go up very high. The home tests are now so sensitive that you know if you're 10 days pregnant and you haven't even missed your period yet, they'll probably be positive. And they did a study, actually, probably a, a study that has no political bearings, where they looked at college students, and they had them come in every month for pregnancy tests. And a lot of, there were a lot more positive pregnancy tests and women just having heavier periods than women ever knew that they, they didn't even know they were pregnant. They just had a heavy period, maybe a day or two late. Yeah. So it's a very common thing that happens. Uh, And just like, I think it's Morgan is so good about writing about how she was made to feel Mm -hmm. uh, in a time where she's already feeling tragically sad Yeah. to be questioned like that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it the same as a blighted ovum? doesn't get as far as a blighted ovum. A blighted ovum, actually, there is development of gestational stuff. You get a sac yeah. and you get fluid in the sac, but there's no fetus in the sac. Okay. Okay. Right. So that so, if you did an ultrasound, you wouldn't even see that is what you're saying. You'd see a blighted you, ovum. You'd never, a chemical pregnancy would never even, you'd, you'd see nothing on ultrasound. That, yeah. So it's just the hormone levels that change enough for a positive pregnancy test and a, and a late cycle is what you're saying. Yeah. Or even, yeah, it could be late or it could be a day too late. It could be a week late, but it never gets very far. You really don't, you may have 
slight symptoms of pregnancy. Your breasts may be a little tender. You may be a little nauseous, but it goes away really fast. Yeah. And then you start spotting and then you run a pregnancy and then your pregnancy test is close to zero. And you wonder, was I pregnant? But if you had a pregnancy test three, four days before that, that was positive. Yeah. yeah. That's classically what, a, you know, the label, the term that we use is chemical pregnancy. It sounds sort of weird, but that's yeah. just what it's called. <laughs> sounds pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, we, we, as providers to women who are pregnant and who are hopeful and carrying life and all of this stuff, or maybe just medical providers in general, because our health is at stake, right? We do need to be really sensitive. And one of the common complaints of, of women in this experience, and especially families where, you know, like when we're talking about the statistics with black women dying more in childbirth is that they're not being listened to. They're not, you know, so the fact that this woman says, I took two positive pregnancy tests and the doctor's like, are you sure you were even pregnant? Not only is that insensitive to her loss, but also just invalidating her as a sovereign, intelligent woman who is fully capable of peeing on and reading a pregnancy test. So, you know, just whether or not you believe it, you know, I know sometimes as providers, we're kind of, we can question some of the information that people are giving us, but regardless, just validate them. Like how hard is that to just validate what it is that they're reporting? That's not a difficult thing to do. Again, for those in the medical world that are on their hamster wheel of the industrial medical complex, the care and nurturing the client is not a priority. Yeah. It's not. And in those situations, they'll never be held accountable in their own um, corporation or their own practice. But we as consumers can hold them accountable simply by not going back and not frequenting and spreading good news, spreading news to our friends and family about people that, that we love, people that do the do things the right way. And promoting those people until they get overwhelmed. They <laughs> can't take it anymore. <laughs> but uh, present company included. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's what we're going to have to do because because the system is not going to hold them accountable because the system doesn't care. It doesn't care. And it's really sort of a sad thing that the system doesn't care, but it's a reality. And it's sort of been the theme of all these letters that we went through today. I think we'll probably call it here because we're running out of time. But I do, I do... You know, I want to I want to say that, you know, when we hear these hollow words of, you know, when we hear a con congressman say or or a reporter say we need to have them held accountable. It doesn't it doesn't mean anything. No one's ever no one ever goes to jail. No one ever loses their job. Um, and and people say that you have to it has to be one of those things where you hear those words and you realize that, you know, once you see it for what it is, you can't unsee it. And you know that that it doesn't mean anything. Okay. Yep. yep. <laughs> okay. So anything else you want to add to the end of this podcast? Well, some something came up for me with a client recently that I just jotted down a note, but I think, I think we'll wrap this up and I'll talk about it next time. I think you should talk about it right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've had this client that has had severe itching, right? And so when we ask clients about itching, we either think about pups or we think about cholestasis. And so she doesn't have any visible like rash. Lesions, or yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've done a whole panel 
to make sure and rule out cholestasis. It happened in her last pregnancy as well. And for the last three visits, we've like just tried all kinds of stuff. She's, she's a homeopathy student. So she's been going deep dive into homeopathy. She didn't get any resolution with that. And we've done all kinds of topical stuff. It's like making her feel really crazy and it's keeping her up at night. And it's just been a big deal for her. And it's been really difficult to try and figure it out. And I had this aha moment, like, you know, it's just like one of those things where just things kind of came together. And I've had a couple clients this year who were anemic, you know, not like severe anemia, but I think a lot of times when we think about anemia, we think about being tired and, and stuff like that, like pale color. And, but these two other women had had severe episodes of massive heart palpitations and passing out. And when you and I had talked about it, one of the directions that the doctors went down was doing more, um, having them do like a heart study to make sure that everything was okay with their heart. But turns out that once they got iron infusions, they felt better. These, these symptoms totally resolved. So it was like, oh, these were connected to their anemia. And we've talked about when people have blood loss and stuff like that, some people have big reactions and other people don't. It's just how their body corresponds to what's happening. So I told this woman, I said, I don't know, this is kind of a shot in the dark, but maybe you want to consider doing an iron infusion. You know, maybe this has something to do with your anemia. And I had put her on a protocol of iron to try and get things elevated. And she said, after four days of of doing this protocol, before doing an iron infusion, she started to have resolution. Like she actually slept through the night and she looked it up and itching is one of the side effects of anemia. So I just thought it was really interesting. It was like, huh, I wouldn't have necessarily put two and two together, but it is possible that her itching, which wasn't caught last time by a very good doctor in Los Angeles, they never even thought of it, that that might be one of the ways that her body responds to her anemia. And you're saying that her bile salts and bile acids and her liver tests were normal. Totally normal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we've been doing acupuncture and liver support and supplements for liver and all of this other stuff. So yeah, it's interesting. Great wisdom. And <laughs> you know, if other people out there listening have had similar stories, please write us and tell us. Yeah. So we can pass that on. So. Okay. Well, here we are. Are you going to be in your uh, house next week too? Yeah, I'll be here for a while because I've, I've got back-to-back births until June. My daughter may be moving to Manhattan. Wow. So next week I might be going with her to do something I dread, <laughs> which is apartment hunting in Manhattan. Oh, <laughs> you, you should totally do it. I see. No, I, I don't dread going anywhere with my daughter. I just right. I dread the idea of, I have no idea. The By the way, if anybody lists, oh, this won't be out in time. Shoot. I was going to say, if anybody has anybody who knows anybody who's got an apartment for for rent, I feel like a Seinfeld episode, uh, you know, please, please reach out. Let me know. And I'll see you. I'll see you then next week, Liz. Okay, you guys. I'll I'll be coming to LA the week of March 18th, 19th, I think. Okay. So maybe we can, maybe on that Wednesday after like the 23rd or something like that, I can, I can, we can get together. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So until next time, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a great middle of the night and bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 